Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Hello and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans and I'm excited to have Iran Davidson on the podcast. Iran, welcome. Thank great. you. Okay, great to see you. So Iran, I we were just trying to figure out how many years ago it was that we saw each other in your office in Potsdam. And I'm, I'm thinking it might have been, it cannot be less than 15 years ago. I think it would have been more like 15 to 18 years ago. Um, but for those of you who've never met Iran, Iran, um, I first met when he set up Hasso Plattner Ventures. And Hasso, Hasso Plattner is the per, is, is a founder of SAP, chairman of SAP. And incredibly, it's we should have more of these people from Europe. But at the moment, we have one. I think his net worth is close to $20 billion. And, and, yeah. cli and climbing every day. Yeah, yeah climbing every day. Growing every day. Yeah, and, and thanks to Aaron, it, it climbed a bit more um, because he had a number of funds for Hasso Plattner Ventures where they were investing, really Europe's most successful entrepreneur, you might say, um, into technology, venture capital um, assets. Um, Iran was a, a VC in Israel before um, his 25 year stay, I guess, in Germany, um, was with Proceed Venture Capital and Eurofund, which I knew. I was just saying I knew Tomer Zak. Uh, right. When I used to go to Tel Aviv every quarter um, to you know meeting him, but now it's been so. So all in all, how many years of venture capital have you been in the game for, Iran? Twenty-five years. You said it. You said yeah. it's right. Yeah, twenty-five. Twenty-five years. years of which ten years in Israel, another uh, fifteen years in Germany. Yeah. And six venture capital funds in my career. Today I run my fund number seven. But it is the first fund in Germany uh, dedicated for venture debt. The same type of companies like venture capital fund will invest in, but a complementary product. And we can talk about it later. Yeah, I think, I think venture debt is a very misunderstood asset class, ironically, by the VCs. And I think VCs would benefit from some education about it. I, I shared my chapter on venture debt from my first book, you know, which I did with Hercules. Um, but I think that a lot of VCs have a firm conviction about venture debt that's negative and they're actually wrong. And if they just gotten a little bit more enlightened, they could understand when to use it, when not to. Um, but, but explain, Iran, how does venture debt, and I also think it's misunderstood by the LPs, but explain how it works. So if I'm the CEO of a startup, when does this happen and how does it work? First, I'm happy that you mentioned the point that most VCs, even the most famous one and the biggest one in the world, don't really understand what venture debt is all about. And they oppose it, although it really improves their performance and increase the IRR. But before I get to that, let me explain in short what venture debt it is in principle. It's a complementary product to the equity investment with I would say 20 to 30% of the total fund raised by a company at a stage when equity becomes really expensive. And when is equity becomes expensive? When the valuation is high, you see good signs of success of those companies. They are in the mid late stage um, revenue already, not far from break even, not yet positive, but very close to it. 
uh, when the founders understand that every 1% of their uh, equity has a value of millions and why giving it up for another equity investors or to the existing equity investors when you combine, keep financing the growth of the company with a loan that will be paid back from revenues instead of equity money. Uh, so this is in essence a venture debt. The rates are in the range of 10 or 11% interest, annual interest per year. And this is exactly what uh, raises the flag to the investors because they say, wow, so expensive. We are paying double digit interest return on the loan where a bank loan will, would cost us say two or 3%. Well, the answer is no. No bank will give a loan to a cash flow negative company. That's why this niche is dedicated to venture debt providers, private debt providers. And the equity return is supposed to be 30, 50, or maybe 100% every year. So if you pay 10% on the loan, it's so much more economic, makes so much more sense than funding growth with equity. Okay, but so, this very simple formula, yeah, they don't so, understand. So, um... If you're if you're the insider, so if you're the VC who's already invested and owns twenty percent, if you're the founder who's getting diluted, you if you raise more VC funding, you're selling equity, and you're in, you're actually increasing your liquidation stack, right? So you've got to pay that back. So if you raise another twenty million dollars, mm-hmm. at the time of the exit, you should have to pay that twenty million dollars back to the VCs, and you're so you're you're getting under that you know liquidation stack anyway. In a way, it's kind of like a loan, um, uh, but but um, for equity is a very expensive loan, Andrew, and that's what people don't get. Equity is a loan. Equity you pay back, as you rightly said, it is paid back five, ten, or even more years down the road. But when you pay it back, you've paid five times, ten times, twenty times. Well, there's you actually dividends. Pay- I mean, I mean, um, I remember. You know, I've advised a lot of corporate venture capitalists, and when they see dividends on a term sheet, they have conviction that they're that they're right when they're wrong. That that dividends are a backdoor way of lifting the liquidation stack. So if you mm-hmm. raise one million dollars, if you raise a hundred thousand dollars of venture capital funding equity, there might be a dividend of six percent a year going up. So that um, you, if you exit tomorrow, you pay the hundred thousand dollars back to the VC, and then pari passu, who owns what? But if it was 8%, which I've seen, and it goes on for 13 years, your 100K loan that you've got to pay back to the VCs is actually pretty bad. But so for your model and how it works, you're making an interest rate on the money that you lend to the venture-backed startup. Is it typically 36 monthly payments or how, does the, how do the payments work? Are there balloons? Now, here come, here's the point. What we do today, and you ask me about, you will ask me later why we are different, is um, venture debt is evolving. It's a new, relatively new product. Therefore, the 36 month is not fixed in stone. It's not written anywhere. We will customize the needs, customize our solution to the needs of the companies. So if they need the loan for two years, they will get it for two years. If they want to extend it to three or four, we will extend it for them. We will even build tranches with at no additional cost. So we are not a bank. We try 
to cater the needs of our clients, the companies. So one of the ways um, we are different than any uh, other lender, but also the whole subject, the whole sector is evolving into more um, customized solutions with value added. So I have to mention that I'm probably the only venture capitalist in Europe that switched the lines to venture debt. So I speak the same language like the venture capitalist or the equity investors of the company. I understand there will be a problem and in every company, even the best companies, we have issues every single quarter. And uh, I'm prepared for that. And when there is a problem, I'm trying to come with a solution. I don't pull the plug. Right. So I, venture so debt think... is not one solution fix, um, uh, is, uh, fits all. Right. Different solutions to different companies. So, and, and that's important because every human is unique and believe me, every startup is unique. So Absolutely. you can't just yeah. talk to them all the same. The, and unfortunately, the, the, the bank on the corner, the commercial bank in the corner is looking for revenue streams and you know, assets that they can collateralize a loan with. And these startups are nowhere near that. So it requires someone from Hassel Platner to come in and understand it, know all the people and they know you know that. But to understand the moving parts, my, my vanilla understanding of classic venture debt, which seems to have all been born out of Com Disco, and then they blew up like the Big Bang and they landed in all these other venture debt places in the Valley, in Silicon Valley, is they, they say this, if the, if the VC funding round is $10 million, they'll top it up with another two to three. And then um, they're gonna make 36 month payments with an interest rate that I thought was higher than 11%. Um, but they feel pretty comfortable that they're going to get at least the first 12 months back because, hey, they just they just got uh, all this funding and maybe they can get more, you know, hopefully you'll get the full 36 back, but you even get some of your money back from your losers. But then there's an equity your, kicker. Your voice were cut and slow. Please repeat oh, okay. the last. Okay, a little COVID internet. Everyone's on the internet here. Um, so there's the, there's the straight up loan where yeah. you lend money and they pay it back with an interest rate on some payment schedule. But then my understanding of venture debt is that because you're VCs at heart, there's some warrants, like six to 8% of the loan with warrant coverage. How do you calculate that? So there's dilution, but a lot less dilution, one could argue. Absolutely, it's a good point. So uh, half of our return is supposed to come from the interest return payment and we charge interest every quarter for the duration of the loan and every quarter it's become less and less because amortization is kicking in sometime normally after one year so the principal is getting smaller and the interest accordingly is uh, smaller now uh, the kicker what we call equity kicker or warrant coverage is supposed to to double the return from the interest, but it doesn't happen in every company. So every third company in average becomes a success and there we can cash out our uh, options, warrant coverage, we call it. And these warrants are not for free. Uh, we need to pay for the equity, the same price like the most recent equity round the investors paid. So if we step in in a company today, we nail down uh, the valuation of the company for the next 10 years for us only 
to buy, let's say, 10% of the round in equity. So if, if we provide 5 million euro, $5 million of debt, we have the right to buy equity at the most recent valuation for 500,000 euro. In almost all cases, it is translated to one, between one and 2% of the company. So the expected dilution at an exit scenario and only when there is an exit for the uh, shareholders, they can expect a, a dilution of one to 2%. That's all. So it's not, not very painful and it's not for free. If we do decide to execute our options, we have to do it at the same price like most recent round. Right. And for it's me, not that painful. I, yeah, for me, yeah. I've had warrants in companies that were at the same. In fact, when we met, I was fundraising for startups from VCs. So I would get warrant coverage as well, where I have the right to cashlessly buy stock at that pre-money valuation just at the moment of the exit. So exactly. A minute um, before. So, exactly. so that's so, exactly the product. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I so I think then the, the key argument is. When you start a company, start with good co-founders, good advisors, good first investors, surround it with network. And when you're looking at the option of getting venture debt, it's to you know, bridge in, and help grow the company with minimizing dilution to insiders, both investors and founders. Um, but um, hopefully the guy doing the venture debt actually has a network and has been around for 25 years and knows some people or has some experience. Um, and you're financially motivated to see the equity increase in value. Exactly. You, you know, to support, support the company. So I remember in London, there was, I thought it was ETV, like European Technology Ventures, which Ross and Maurizio rebranded as Creos Capital, right? And I, I remember thinking, man, these guys are killing it, that um, other VCs are, it's very idiosyncratic. There only can only be in so many deals in three years where Ross and Maurizio were just pumping money into everything. And it had a dynamic of how many portfolio companies have you got right now? 10, 10 companies. 10 companies. So every month, theoretically, there's 10 companies wiring money to your bank account, right? Exactly. Where, every where, quarter. Where, you know, I've been a VC for a few decades and that doesn't happen, unfortunately, for me. No, it's more, no. It's more... in VC business, you, have to, you need to wait 10 years minimum for the first company to exit. Yeah, I'm just waiting for lightning to strike, right? I'm just waiting to get hit yeah. by lightning. Um, whereas you, every month, you're running a business like you're an insurance company or a pension fund that you have these week, these monthly cash flows coming in. Almost like fixed income, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, assuming there's no default, and there are defaults, there are. You ask yeah. how many of them? One or two out of ten. So, so one or two average. out of ten. And, and I think like like people used to say in ancient times of the '90s that if you had a hundred and fifty million dollar fund, fifty million that they're going to run out of money, you'll never get that money back. Another fifty million, hook or crook, you get it your back one x, and the other fifty has to move the needle on this entire thing. And let's not mention management fee um, to get to some kind of forty percent IRR. With you guys even a bad one ought to be able to make a few payments before, unless you've been defrauded, right? Exactly. It normally takes at least two years until you see there is an issue. There is a problem with a company I lended money to. And within this period of time, you probably get more than half of your money back. So when we have a default first, it's not 100% of the money. It's more like 50%. 
And second, and we had all these cases in our portfolio already, you can still recover the rest of it by selling the IP or uh, some assets because we do have seniority. We are the only lenders in every deal. And our collateral is IP, subsidiaries, uh, cash uh, accounts receivable, uh, whatever there is in the company. It's all very light assets, but we, that's why we, are in, uh, we know something about technology and we know so many potential buyers. Normally there is a buyer not to the price that uh, investors would expect to get anything, uh, any return from, but we at least can get our money back. Sometimes yeah, I, I, more than 100% unfortunately, in a default scenario. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, I am experienced enough to have landed in ABC with my portfolio companies more than once, which for those that don't know, you, you're better off not knowing what this is, but it's administration for the benefit of creditors, ABC. And so if you had ventured at into one of my deals that hit ABC, I'd say, hey, Ryan, you're paying for dinner because you're the only one, you're the only one who's going to get any money out of this. But you I know. need to sweat for it. And uh, yeah, you're right. It's not a bad business. But overall, look, I have to be honest, we don't make the same money as a good VC is making in a portfolio. Because a good VC, when they have a blockbuster and they had a you know, fund return company, one company that returned the whole fund in every in every single yeah. venture capital fund I was running in the last 25 years. That's fantastic. You can make uh, 50 million out of a 2 million euro investment while in venture capital business, sorry, in venture debt business, maximum you make one is 1.3 to 1.5x uh, and overall the IRR is, and this is industry standards, global average of 12%. So not that good, it's not that bad, but it does provide you with constant cash flow, which people like to see, especially House of Platner. And uh, we don't mind uh, all the family offices, and I'm an investor in my own fund. We don't care that the majority of the money is sitting somewhere in, in our portfolio companies, but we get our 10% net per year. It's not bad at all. So then we are fine with 1.3 to 1.5x at the end of the term, while uh, it's a small, uh, smaller risk and a smaller return. So right, but yes, dependable. That's why I like it. That's why right. I like it. Right. So w when you look at, I guess you're thinking more IRR than cash on cash multiples. Um, no, I no no not at all. Don't get me wrong. IRR is a good number to show the LPs, but what they, and I'm an LP in my own fund, what we only care about finally, especially in zero environment, zero interest environment like we have today, which will stay for many more years, we believe, is cash on cash. Just cash on cash. That's the only thing that counts. Yeah. And they keep telling, asking me, and I keep telling you how much you put in, how much you got out. IRR is a number to to show off with, but it's not what they mostly care about. Yeah, I, I personally agree with that. And with the kind of LPs that we have in our VC funds, we, we, we feel the same way. So as far as the evolution, venture capital is always changing, but um, it seemed like Creos Capital, at least they said to me many years ago, we think we have 50% of the market in Europe, but we've seen BPI France, the government, get into the venture debt game very actively in yeah. France. And I'm wondering, um, I don't know if British Business Bank is doing it in the UK, but Silicon Valley Bank 
is now fully operational in the UK. You're Aaron, back. So tell us about the landscape of venture debt in Europe. Is it still nascent or is it highly evolved? The players I really know are Creos Capital out of London. And I think you could argue that Silicon Valley Bank has entered the UK market, if not others. And German as well, yeah. Mm -hmm. And BPI France is big in France, even though it's the government. They're doing this. So what does the landscape look like? It is growing slightly, but still the supply is um, cannot meet all demand. Demand is, I would say, five times bigger than the supply. We see it. We see an incredible deal flow, especially now during Corona times, when equity becomes really expensive and rare. As for the landscape, we only see... I would say four significant play, real players around us, all coming from the UK. Um, you mentioned Creos, they are the biggest. I think they have 600 million euro fund under management now, which is great. They started this business uh, probably 15 years ago or something like that. Now, um, there is Columbia Lake Partners, CLP, with about 200 million, and they're uh, Harbert, also around 200 or 250. So these are the three venture debt funds I see around and I like to work with. That all three are highly professional, and uh, we can work well together. Actually, we we placed a proposal together with Harbert, which is outstanding, to one company, and uh, we did a big transaction together with Creos when we landed 70 million, seven zero, with a consortium of three venture debt fund wow. to SoundCloud. This was two years ago. And oh, we right. exited. We exited already because the company was sold to uh, Bain Capital in the US. So that was one of my now, questions. Uh, can you, yeah. so, so you, so the answer is yes, you can collaborate with another venture debt firm. And, you know, I guess from your perspective, if you diversify more into high quality deals, that are well-funded, um, then that's positive to get all of the payments back and hope to use that money to push to make your equity kicker valuable. Yeah, we don't do much of collaboration like venture capital funds do because venture capital or equity investment, investments can only be, can, can always be increased. At every point of time, the company can decide, okay, let's take some more money, nothing will happen, maybe dilution uh, will be bigger, but. It's better to have more cash in the bank. In the venture debt space, it's different because one lender, each lender would like to have all securities which are light anyway un under his possession. And we do it, we do share deals when it comes to the big numbers. I would say about 10 million, sometimes about 20. Very few fund, venture debt funds, maybe just two can do a, write a check of over 20 million. I'm not one of them. So sure. any, anything between, I, I can do up to 10 million, anything between 10 and, uh, or above 10, I would call one of my friends at Creos, Harbert or CLP and share the deal with them. Okay. And, and um, in starting this, your latest fund here with the venture debt, um, you obviously, had done well at Hassel Plattner and even Euro VC before. Um, so you made a GP commitment to the fund. Was Mr. Hassel Plattner the anchor LP with his family office or 
did you, how, how did you, what was the birth like in getting the, getting it up and running? Uh, I called some friends, family offices. I didn't call him at all, actually, just to say goodbye, but nothing more. Hustle Partner is, uh, as you mentioned, his network, uh, net value is not interested in small uh, funds like that, unless it's something, first, very large, and second, with strategic value to his uh, major asset, uh, which is SAP. So I didn't even bother him, because when we did raise funds together, Hustle and myself, he insisted of being 75% of every fund. He didn't let me raise more than 25%. And he wanted his name to be on it. House of right. Latin Ventures. And now it's my turn. Okay. Okay. So it's... I just called a few family offices, asking if they want to join me because I put my own money first in this uh, journey. It took me a year only to uh, receive the Buffin approval. You know, the Buffin is a supervisor over uh, banks in Germany. And it takes time to get the permission from them to um, to lend money yeah. on a commercial basis. So I was yeah. the first, so it, it took me a long time to, to convince them that I can do it without a bank license and without, without being regulated like a bank. So I, I was the first to, to open the door in Germany for, for a local fund to operate legally. While all other venture debt funds that lend to German companies do it from the UK, Luxembourg, or somewhere else. So they're not uh, monitored by the local uh, buffin. Right. And speaking of, I wanted to ask, how do you think um, Brexit is uh, impacting your business? And also, you've been in Berlin since back when Munich was the hot spot, and now you know, startups and VCs have really moved from Munich largely, not all of them, but up to Berlin. What is the current status of, is Berlin the place to be for startups in Europe? And how is Brexit impacting the, the ecosystem? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Brexit impacts us, us in Berlin very positively. Not only Berlin, mostly Berlin, but also Frankfurt, Munich and, and other uh, European big large cities because many companies, especially in the FinTech, InsurTech uh, sectors move out of London, which used to be the financial center of not only Europe, maybe globally, to other centers. In Berlin, they find it really attractive to nowadays to, to find the cheap um, locations, office space, and good employees at a normal price. Um, cost much cheaper than London. So we only benefit from that. Many yeah. companies have their headquarters in, uni even I, I counted more than 10 unicorns, VC funded uh, are located around us in Berlin. So 10 minutes ride with my motorcycle or <laughs> uh, public transport. And I see uh, lots of very interesting companies. So I yeah. don't need to travel to London that often anymore to, to hunt for deals. Uh, we are deal hunters after all. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing the difference in cost of living. Um, you can live like a king in Berlin compared to being in, in a tiny flat in London. The expense base has always been there, but it used to be that there's so many more VCs in London that it almost made sense to pay up and be there. It sounds like uh, Brexit is maybe boosting, bo boosting Berlin and Germany. 
Yeah, London is losing uh, a lot of talent because of that. A lot of financial activities, a lot of taxes. Uh, prices are going down in London at the moment, both residential and commercial. Uh, in Berlin, they are going up because uh, many more people, you know, 50,000 people are moving to, London, to Berlin every year at the moment. 50,000 people per year, while only 10,000 new residential units are being built every year in uh, Berlin. So there is a big shortage. Um, yeah, Berlin is the place to be at the moment. I love it here. It's not that cheap as it used to be, but still half the price. If you go look for a, a cappuccino in the street, you'll pay four bucks in four to five uh, pounds. In, in London, in Berlin, two to two and a half euro. Half yeah. the price just for a coffee. Yeah. And you can translate that into every other cost of living. I lived in, I went to the Humboldt Universität and the FU in Berlin from 1991 to 1992. So I speak German and I love the city and it's changed more than any any city in the world from those years. Um, but Iran, um, you also, one of the funds you put together with Hassel Platner was focused on Africa. And it seems like uh, enormous opportunities, almost any well-funded business had would have potential to do, to do well, but unique problems. Tell us about your African fund and what was that experience like? I set my African venture capital fund together with Hustle Platner and some local investors uh, 12 years ago with the hope we can make some kind of uh, financial return similar to what we have here. We started with uh, 50 million uh, euro and we funded 12 companies or so. But what I found there that you are lucky if you get the money back. Mm. <laughs> okay, the return is not as good, but far from being uh, similar to here, mostly because you have to play the rules according to, to their rules, which means corruption, which means uh, you have to employ people you don't ha want to employ, there is because you know there are some rules you have to hire minorities to comply with the local guidelines and you have to um, pay minimum salaries to people that don't deserve these kind of salaries and, and finally the markets are far away and uh, poor so overall i can tell you my experience in south Af africa was not that um, exciting I do love Africa. I, I visited South Africa every quarter and we did make a return of one X in our fund over there, but it's far from okay. what we expected. It's far from, right. and it's still, the, the challenge is growing and getting more and more difficult. Uh, but keep in mind there are some sectors in Africa, in South Africa, in Africa in general, that are far advanced than other countries world, worldwide like in the mining business, uh, mobile banking, and uh, because they skip some, right? Uh, you know, people don't have a bank account, many people in South Africa, but they do have a mobile phone. So we have to find a solution for them to use the mobile phone as a bank. And, uh, and in this uh, sector, for example, South Africans have very good um, developments. And same for mining uh, businesses and some other sectors which are very unique for, for this continent. Mm. And over but the- you have to be there a long, long time to 
to understand the rules of the game. It's different than ours. It's yeah, nothing's an overnight success, but it sounds like there's some wisdom with time there for sure. But speaking of over your 25 years of being active as a venture capitalist, both from Germany and Israel, what I would say M&A is going to be most of the exits. IPO is still a small, a small percentage of those successful M&A exits that you've witnessed in your experience. What percentage were sold to European buyers where you've got SAP, but not that many SAPs and what percentage were sold to us domiciled buyers? Would you say? Well, I, I'll surprise you here. I think there are quite a bit of activity going on under the radar uh, of the big investors because many companies are being sold for less than 100 million to mid-sized companies in Germany or Europe in general. And I'm talking about insurance, mobile, automotive, uh, you name it. And media companies are buying a lot of uh, mid-sized companies. So yes, there is an exit market in uh, Europe and it's growing. Uh, there are many public companies, thousands of public companies, mid-size, uh, what we call Mittelstand here in Germany, that are looking to buy strong teams with some pieces of technology, which normally they don't have. Everything is going online, everything, everything needs to be connected, uh, e-commerce, B2B, mobile, fintech, insurtech, there is a lot of activity going on here. So we do not rely solely on the American big buyers to come over. They do come and they do buy companies for hundreds of millions, but the majorities of the deals are done locally, geographically, in Europe, within Europe. Yeah. You don't read much about it because it's not interesting to, to read about an 80 million euro exit or 120, but there are many of them. I remember um, Henrik and Christian from the founders of Early Bird would give their pitch on early bird in Germany and say yeah. valuations are a third to 50% for the same company of New York or Silicon Valley compared to here. And then we sell our companies to us buyers because we've got the network. And that was kind of, we're buying low and we're the ones with a oil pipeline to exit them, you know, onto Americans. But it sounds like 20 years later, that's a very different reality. It was true like 20, maybe, 10 to 20 years ago, but the markets are evolving and growing and being educated. So Germany specifically is always, I would say 10 years behind the US, but it's catching up, it's learning, not yeah. only by doing, making all those uh, copycats, which is still very popular in Germany. Mm. You see an American model and uh, a few weeks later you have three or four or five local teams oh. trying to do the same in Germany. That's still, still true. It, but it's still, still happening. A lot, a lot. I can give you some examples if you like, but we don't have much time. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember a German, a German entrepreneur that was in the Founders Club. It was the founder of Smeet, actually, if you remember them. It was a Berlin company, Smeet. And really good team. And, and he said he was talking- Bucat Bonello. I was the investor of that company. Oh, you I were? one of the investors. Okay, yeah. so you know the whole story too. So yeah. he told me that he went to see a VC and the VC said, who's doing this in the US? And he goes, nobody. And he goes, this is innovation. This, no one's doing this yet. And he's like, oh, well, like, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> the guy just- We don't do it. it. Yeah, actually, yeah. He, yeah. He, he, he was like waiting for the slide that says, this is who we're copying. 
you know. Well, well good. And I'm well, still listen. looking for those who do it unique, uh, but only okay, less than 10% of the deals I find are those who, which are really unique that nobody else is doing. In Israel, 100%, 100% are unique. Nobody's yeah, well, doing anything like somebody else. I think theoretically, if so, an entrepreneur is in, say, Jakarta or Bali, and they have unique problems of infrastructure that's unique to that country, similar to South Africa, they're going to solve their unique problems. And an American might not see any value in having a crypto wallet on their phone because they've yeah. got this amazing American Express card and a great bank account, and they maybe don't travel. Whereas the unbanked guy in Bogota, Colombia, riding Uber can't pay at the pump without being banked. And so they solve unique problems. So I think you will see more unique problems. Germany uh, has had a good run of copying and selling, copying and selling. Because the local market is 84 million people. Right. And to right. that, Austria and Switzerland, you got over 90 million. So this yeah. is the comfort zone. And you can yep. start with that. You need to know German. You need to know the local players. Why, why bother? When I try to upset the French, which I enjoy doing, I say, look, do you think Napoleon would be satisfied for making a copycat of eBay serving France and Belgium and a little bit of Switzerland? I don't think so. He would invade <laughs> 100 countries, including Russia, with a lot of conviction trying to get a little bigger. So I think it's good to see Europeans think bigger. Do you think that um, there's enough? Sometimes I say, why do we not have more publicly traded companies that are real big balance sheet buyers in Europe? In China, we've seen, you know, Huawei, Tencent, Alibaba, all these companies, you know, Baidu get big very quickly. So they've got mm -hmm. not only the VCs, but they got the big balance sheet buyers to dual track. So when you're going through a financing round, it's good to raise money saying, we're turning down an offer to sell for 250 million. Let's go bigger. But I think that a lot of the VC funds in Europe, if you peel them back, have a lot of soft government money in there. And they support early stage, but they're not supporting the real growth, growth, growth. It's changing. But I think that you need growth money to get the company onto the stock exchange so it becomes the consolidating buyer, like the next SAP. Um, what do you think our current state of growth funding in Europe is right now? There is a still huge lack of funding when it comes to the 10 million plus per deal. Uh, some American investors are coming in with writing big checks or even private equity funds, but even 10 million is too small for them. So they will come in at uh, 20, 30 or 50 million euro round that they can do on, on their own. And this gap is not being uh, catered, not being uh, answered at the moment. That's why we don't have these big uh, SAPs and the newcomers into the big players game. We don't have them because of mostly lack of funding, one reason. The second reason you can say lack of ambitions by the founders. Mm -hmm. They give up on that dream. They would rather go for the small dream. They are fine going home with 10 million euro when they are 35 and not aim for a billion dollar company. Few of them do. And what I find interesting is that those very ambitious entrepreneurs that go for the unicorns and not necessarily Germans. Look at the Liberty Hero, for example. Look at the Zalando, all those uh, 
companies, I, if I was the seed founder of Delivery Hero, now it's 7 billion in the stock market. The CEO, uh, co-founder is Danish. He's yeah. very much like Israeli, very high, very uh, ambitious. And uh, he's not going for the 100 million euro. He's going for the billion. And, and, uh, but there are many, very few of them. The majority, it's a chicken and egg question of what comes first, but they don't they find it very difficult to find investors at the mid-late stage round with that can write a big ticket. So they give up and sell the company for a um, hundred million, which is not bad for everybody, but it's not those new SAPs. We don't see yeah. them around. I think- uh, it, it, They're it, not coming actually, Andrew. I don't think it will happen. Very well, What we are seeing when you look at the German um, nature of being uh, risk averse, where Israelis are generational entrepreneurs, all trained to take enormous risk, not to mention being in the Israeli Defense Forces experience that most of them get. It's just so yeah. different from the Germans. But I think that if you start to see secondaries, I almost feel I, I was supportive of secondaries. You might remember my Founders Club exchange fund, and I was front row seat of the secondaries. But I see some of our founders take like a, a $5 million secondary with a big oversubscribed funding round. So they take cash out of the deal and buy that house that they want and secure their family. Now they're ready to fight for nothing short of a billion dollar IPO. Um, and if you were to go to a risk averse German and say, you've been paying yourself a small salary, making all these you know, family you know, you know, struggle compromises, here's like Kennet Capital often has always done it. We're gonna offer you 5 million each to cash out and then we win this deal. That might make them fight for the, the bigger exit. Um, but I think there needs to be growth money. But um, final question for you, uh, Iran. Obviously anyone considering a venture debt deal or even a growth financing round, I think should be talking to you in Germany. What other geographies should people listening to this reach out to you for? when considering learning about venture debt and seeing if it even could work for them? Other geographies which are looking for to raise venture debt, you mean? Or Yes. Like, do you want to hear from British entrepreneurs listening to this? Danish, French, Dutch entrepreneurs? Yes, absolutely. I think it's uh, the market all over Europe is very Im Im immature. They're not educated. They don't know much and they want to learn. It's it's improving a lot in the last weeks and months, but still most of the companies, founders, uh, even venture capital funds, as we discussed earlier, don't know much about the product. They are afraid of it. They need to talk to me. They need to ask me and my colleagues in the industry uh, why it's good for them, not for the venture debt provider. We know why it's good for us. Okay, we are we talked about it before, but. It is also good for the founders. It's good, good for the investors in those companies. And it, it makes it easier for the companies to grow bigger, faster, without dilution, and maybe achieve unicorn status. You know, Due to our loans, two of our companies, two of our portfolio companies uh, managed to get to the billion valuation and beyond without dilution. Yeah, it's amazing. With very minimal, it's WeFox, an insurtech company, and SoundCloud, which I mentioned before that was sold for 400 million. Now they are valuation of over a billion. And they did it because, mostly because they took venture debt instead of equity money. So they could increase the value, the value of the company for the benefit of everybody, not only the founders 
uh, without much dilution. So people are not aware of it. And the, the fear of venture debt is psychological. It's not rational. People just don't do the math. Add five, 10 or 20 million loan to your balance sheet and see the IRR of your LPs getting much higher. Very yep. simple to show it. And Iran, like two, three for, or five percent. Yeah. For helping for helping guys like me recognize when should we introduce our portfolio companies or think about venture debt in our next funding rounds. I think of 20% of the round being venture debt as a sort of standard. What what is of course if they have revenues and hard assets to collateralize, it's different. But what's the rule of thumb? If we're raising 10 million euros, should we top that up with um, another two million or should we raise eight million and add two million of venture debt to that 10 million financing? You always start with, by, with the need of the company. If the company needs 10 million, carve out 20 to 30% offer it to a venture debt provider. Very if 30%, easy. If the 30%. company is looking for 50, 30%, up okay. to 30%. If the company is seeking a 15 million raise venture debt or a mix of equity and debt, again, five out of 15, we can provide. Assuming that's very important, that in a base case scenario, the company can reach break even with this amount of money without additional capital raise. This yeah. is the worst case or base case. If along the way they will raise more money at higher valuation, more than welcome, we will support, we will help, and um, not a problem at all. But we want to know that if wars come to wars and the company is not able to raise additional money, at least the money in the bank together with our loan can bring it to break even. Right. So the revenue of the companies will pay back the loan, not the additional new round. I think that's the sober way to look at it. Say like, what could we change here with our spend to tip into profitability to never be punished for having taken venture debt? And if you can, if you can believe in that, then it's probably worth doing. Yes, and keep in mind, I tell you a secret here that you can share. We are the last on earth that would like you to get into default as a borrower. We don't want to cash out uh, too early. We don't want to liquidate them. It's a dirty and nasty business to take a company to insolvency. So we will find every possible solution to avoid it. And we did avoid it in so many cases. We found buyers, we found investors, we, we even inserted, injected uh, more money uh, to help the company bridge uh, one or two difficult quarters. We, easy, we, we just, uh, gave uh, the companies vacation from interest payments and principal payments when needed. So we, we, we are very, very creative, creative in finding solutions when there is a problem, uh, unlike a bank that would just pull, pull yeah. the plug away. And... Right. Well, Aaron, thank you, my friend. Let's not let so many years go by. I hope the uh, airline industry doesn't go bankrupt either so we can see each other. <laughs> we will. Thank you for calling, Andrew. It was a great pleasure. Okay. Thanks again. Bye. Have a nice evening. Good luck. Good luck. Bye.